It's not bad. Okay, we're going to go on in our study of uh, the community of believers. If somebody would get 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 for me. Uh, Don and somebody else get me Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Daniel. looking at the nature of the church and how it relates to us, God's design for the church, God's uh, structure. It's probably the best way to approach this and uh, how, how we are to behave ourselves in it or, or how our lives fit into the context of the church. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 is our basic text. Okay, I'm writing to you so that you'll have reference points. You'll have a way to know how you ought to conduct yourself or how to relate to the church of Jesus Christ, the pillar and ground of truth. And so we spent the last couple of weeks looking at authority in the church and the structure of leadership in the church and how that relates to us, how we are to view that authority. That naturally leads into the issue of Discipline in the church. Uh, let's have Matthew 18, 15 to 20. This is the text I dropped in your lap on the way out last week so that you would have Scripture to think about uh, and to ponder how this applies to you. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Okay, and so this is a tremendous portion of Scripture that uh, we like to pull, especially those last couple of verses out, and apply them to prayer and to uh, power with God. But And that, that's perhaps not completely inappropriate, but contextually, that isn't really what Jesus is addressing. Contextually, you can see He's addressing discipline in the church. And so we're going to look at that a little bit more in just a minute. Clearly flowing out of the concept of authority is the issue of discipline. Before we go into that, is there any question that anyone has uh, regarding uh, authority and leadership that perhaps cropped up last week that we were unable to answer? We didn't have enough time. Or maybe as you thought about the scriptures that we went over, you uh, something came up in your head. Okay, all right, so we want to look at discipline. The church is always given to extremes, probably because the church is people, and people are given to extremes. And so 
the issue of discipline uh, raises clearly uh, extremes in uh, the church's thinking and in Christians' thinking. One side of the issue or one extreme of the issue is that uh, discipline is completely out of line. The churches should not discipline. There should be no discipline. This is usually the view held by those who are being disciplined or those who have someone very close to them who's being disciplined. At that point, discipline is always unjust, unfair, and uncalled for. And so uh, this, unfortunately, is starting to become the prevailing perception in the church world at large. The church world at large does not believe uh, that uh, there should be any discipline or that there should be uh, any authority of the church in anyone's life. Uh, I was talking with a fellow who used to come to church here, known him for years, and uh, I think I've shared this with some of you, or I might have even uh, spoken about it in a sermon. Uh, but we were talking over the fence, and he was saying that the church that he's going to now, that the, uh, there was a young couple that's living together. They're not married. They have kids uh, uh, out of wedlock, and they're, uh, uh, they're just living together, just shacking up. This goes on. And so he raised this issue with his pastor and said, you know, uh, I don't know if this is appropriate that we should be sanctioning this. And the pastor's response is, look, we're here to redeem people. We're here to win people to the Lord. And if we come crashing in on their lifestyles, we're going to run them off. And so this is the logical, rational response to the issue of discipline. We don't want to freak people out. We don't want to run people off. We don't want them to be mad. And and, uh, then we lose the ability to uh, touch them with redemption. That sounds reasonable and it sounds compassionate. But it must be equally said that without confrontation, they'll never know that they need to change. And you can preach all year long on it, but until you bring the hammer down into their life, uh, it's much easier for them to continue in sin because apparently it's acceptable. And so uh, another brother I've shared this with you who was put out of this church at one point was wandering around the religious wasteland trying to find a church to attend. And one of the larger churches that he went to, the pastor there told him that Pastor Mitchell had no right to throw him out of the church for visiting prostitutes and staying involved in drug abuse. That was wrong, that pastors shouldn't do that. So this is one extreme. This is, and this is the way a great many people view church discipline. In fact, a lot of Christians, if you even ask them about the subject church discipline, they'll kind of look at you like a dog, you know. You know, hi Fido. They don't quite really know what you're saying. They hear your voice, but they, they don't get it. And so many, many times, uh, that's the response you get to church discipline. John Stott writes in a book called Confess Your Sins, The Way of Reconciliation. Uh, he says, the world is almost wholly unimpressed by the church today. There is widespread departure from Christian moral standards. So long as the church tolerates sin in itself and does not judge itself, and fails to manifest visibly the power of Jesus Christ to save from sin, it will never attract the world to Christ. And so he's he's commenting, he's looking, he says, you know, I'm looking at this, and one of the reasons why the church has lost its dynamic and its thrust in this generation is for the very reason that we're talking about right now. They no longer exercise church discipline, they no longer judge themselves. John White and Ken Blue in the book called Church Discipline That Heals says church discipline that takes sin seriously, is almost extinct, especially in the traditional churches. And church morality is often tarnished. Many younger Christians have no idea 
what corrective church discipline is and have little interest in it. And so, again, here are authors. They're looking at the situation. They're taking stock of the religious world. And they're saying discipline is a lost art to the church. Ed Hayes, in his book, The Church, says reformers and other church leaders believe that while a church consists of believers voluntarily joined together, the exercise of discipline is essential to maintaining purity of witness. And so there are various authors that are looking at the landscape and they're saying, you know what, uh, one of the greatest lacking uh, things, lacking to the church today is valid church discipline. The other extreme is obsessive discipline, obsessive meddling, churches that play Holy Ghost. And we've seen this, it kind of rides waves of popularity, but I remember uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, there was a movement called the Shepherding Movement. And in this, uh, absolute authority in a believer's life was relinquished to their shepherds. Uh, and their shepherds told them everything about their life, where they would work, what they would do, when they would eat. I mean, it is unbelievable. The control and the abusive authority in people's lives was, was incredible. I read of one uh, pastor, and uh, you know, I don't, this wasn't in our fellowship, and I don't even know if it's true. I just read it, and just because you read it doesn't make it true. But this woman uh, was uh, uh, asked to leave her church because she bought a baby blue convertible that the elders thought was way too worldly for a Christian. Now, I don't know. Maybe the church was Amish or something. Huh? They're all wearing black or something. I don't know. And I don't know if that's true. But if that is true, that's the other extreme. That's insanity. Getting thrown out of church for the car you buy. And yet it's interesting to me, as I've pastored through the years, uh, I, I have people come up to me from time to time and, uh, you know, uh, they say, I heard you want to talk to me. And sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. A lot of times people say, oh, pastor wants to talk to you. And he doesn't even know it. It's somebody else's opinion. pastor needs to talk to you. And so... Uh, and so they come up and, they, you know, here want to talk to me. And even if there is validity, you know, after we talk, they'll, they'll say, oh, is that all? Man, I thought you were going to throw me out of the church. Uh, you know, people, people think I'm going to throw them out of the church for, you know, the, the, the most minor infractions, you know. They missed church one weekend. Well, I thought you were going to throw me out of church, you know. Yeah, that's the way we always deal with non-attenders. Just, we just won't let them attend anymore. That solves the problem. That way we don't have problems with non-attenders. You just, we just don't expect you anymore. And it's absolutely wacky sometimes uh, the way people view the issue of discipline uh, in the church. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the aim of church discipline? What is appropriate in church discipline? Why do we remove people from the church? We are one of the only churches in town that does that. They are perhaps the only church in town that does that. I have never had somebody come to this church and say, uh, I just thought I'd attend because I was thrown out of my church. Uh, that's never happened here. In, in, in the many years that I've been pastoring, that's never happened. So by and large, we're one of the few churches that still believe in this. And so uh, we, we need to look at it. The question is why? Is this valid? Or are we a cult? You know, what's the issue here? Why are we, why are we the way we are? And so I want to look at this. It seems to me that there's two ultimate purposes in church discipline. And uh, both of these uh, probably have application in any situation 
But the second one is uh, particularly true in people that are not repentant or receptive to discipline. So let's have uh, some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. Uh, Casey, get that. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8. Uh, Pete, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. No. Uh, James 5, 19 and 20. Rod, Woody, get me. Uh, Woody, you're back. So good to see you again. He's been off learning how to fly planes, which is very scary because he's a pilot. And he's been flying for years. And he just went to learn how to fly them. That gives me pause. Second... Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. And um, that'll, Second that, Corinthians 9, 7 to 11, Sam. Okay. So the first and foremost purpose of discipline is ultimately to redeem people. Just as in child rearing, the exercise of discipline in a child's life is not simply to abuse them or to hurt them or to punish them. It is to teach them and to redeem them. The end is not punitive. That's not what we're after. The issue of church discipline is not simply to uh, send out a loud and clear message. This is, you know, you're wrong and we're going to make an example of you. That is not the purpose of church discipline. Church discipline is to redeem. It's to get a grip on a person who has not come to grips himself or herself with the issues of Christianity and to make them look very seriously at the way they're living and the things that they're doing. And hopefully in that confrontation with their flesh and with their behavior, they will see, you know what, this isn't right. This isn't the way I should be living As a Christian, uh, I need to take care of this issue. Perhaps the clearest example in the New Testament of the exercise of church discipline is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so let's have uh, verses 1 to 5. This is a very ugly situation in the Corinthian church that Paul is responding to. A man is involved with his stepmother immorality, in immorality, and so Paul writes and he says, I can't believe that you've let this go on and you haven't judged it. He says, I'm judging it now. And there's a very powerful statement he makes there. When you gather together, and we're going to look at this in the context of Matthew 18 in a little bit, but he says, when you are gathered together and with my spirit, and in the presence of Jesus Christ. I want you to judge this man. He says, you are puffed up. This is the attitude that we're going to redeem him. Uh, You know, we're proud of our love and our grace. We're a gracious church, and we extend grace to people. And he says, you're just puffed up, uh, and you really, uh, you're completely off the mark on this. You need to repent, and you need to judge this man, and he needs to be removed. He needs to be removed. 
He needs to be set out of the church. And he says he needs to be delivered to Satan. <laughs> that's, that's an intense thought. That is, that is extreme. And he says, you need, to, you need to deliver him to Satan. What do you think Satan's going to do with that guy? You know, we, we whine about church discipline. What do you think Satan is going to do to this guy? And so he says, we do so with one end in mind, that down the road, his spirit will be saved. That somehow this man can be redeemed. That he's going to have to go through the fire. He's going to have to pass through some things that are very, very unpleasant, very distasteful for everyone involved. But the end result of that is that somehow we can reach this guy with the real thing. And he can be redeemed. It is held most by most commentators that this man crops up again in 2 Corinthians 2, 5-8. to Okay, and so most people believe that this is reference to the same man, and he's saying this church has acted against him. So even if it isn't the same man, we still have a principle of discipline that's taking place here. And he says this church acted against someone, acted against this man, and now I want you to... Uh, he, he's suffered long enough. He's dealt with this. Uh, clearly, over a period of time, people have been able to observe his heart, his attitude, he's repentant. He wants to get it right. He wants to be right with God. And so it's time to let him back into the church, he says. It's time to extend love to him and, uh, uh, and get this thing healed up, get this man back moving in the right direction. So that's what it's all about. So even if it's not the same man, apparently there was someone who was removed for some reason, and he says, this is what, this is what discipline is for. He's suffered long enough. He's dealt with this issue. I want you to bring him back in and restore him. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Here's a process, and it's very, very clear that this process is designed to redeem. That first, if there's an offense, try to get it worked out, and if it works out, you have saved or spared this brother. That's what we want. We don't want to just bring the axe down on everybody who has a problem. We don't want to just uh, destroy lives. He says, you've saved, you've spared, you've gained this brother by taking proper steps and not going to the extreme immediately. He says, then if he won't hear you, go with some brothers and try to work this out. This is a process of trying to reason with someone, trying to get them to see clearly that they're in the wrong, they're violating, and they need to straighten it up. And if you can get to to that person before you have to take the radical action of throwing them out, treating them like a heathen and a tax collector, then you've done the right thing. Ultimately, that's what God was after. God was not after destroying or crushing someone. He was after trying to heal, trying to save, trying to restore, and trying to redeem. James 5, 19 and 20. 
So, uh, brethren, if any one of you goes astray and someone is able to win him back to the things of God, know that you've spared a soul for eternity and you've done a great thing in the kingdom of God. This is an admirable thing, the end result of God's heart and desire. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If any man doesn't hear what we're saying, then you need to you need to bring the hammer down on him, not company with him. Uh, make sure that he begins to feel the shame of his actions, but don't don't dismiss the man. Treat him as a brother. Keep in mind this is a brother. This is somebody you know. You, know, you just don't want to kill this person just because they have their problems. Uh, uh, they've got to be uh, addressed. These problems have to be brought home in. In, uh, in this particular situation, in, in very hard ways, but in the final analysis, we want to save this brother and we want to redeem this brother. First Corinthians uh, 5, 5, we already looked at. So ultimately, if a person will receive discipline, if a person will allow the workings of that shame to produce its right fruit, you've redeemed that person. Uh, they can be restored completely and without reservation. So this is very important. I want to drive this point home to you. Because people will come and be disciplined. There's people right now that are out of this church on discipline. And it is our hope that they'll come to grips with what brought this to pass in their life. And that they'll come back and be restored. When they come back and are restored, they are not to come back as second class citizens. These are not people that now you're looking down your nose at them because they got themselves in trouble. You know, you're, you're funky. That, that isn't redemption. That isn't what it's about. We are not trying to put a scarlet letter on people. We are not trying to brand them for life. We're not trying to say, there goes your future, your destiny, your entire life. You have just screwed up and there's no hope for you. That is so wrong. And yet there are people who feel that way. There are people who feel once you've violated, that's it. You're, you know, you're lost. And that's a terrible pharisaical attitude of the elder brother. The younger brother comes back and the father's heart is so thrilled to see him come back, but the elder brother's all ticked off. Hey, you know, he's got no right. He shouldn't, he shouldn't be allowed to minister. What are, you, what are you doing putting him back in the music group? What are you doing sending, you know, what are you sending that guy out for? I remember five years ago, he was disciplined. Well... According to my Bible, that was the whole point. You shouldn't be upset. You should be kicking your heels. You should be shouting the victory. God can redeem. God can get a hold of knuckleheads. If there's hope for Him, there's hope for you. And ultimately, if a person will accept discipline without getting bent. Now let me, let me speak very clearly again. Because I've just hammered people who have a hard time accepting people that have been disciplined. Let me speak to those who perhaps will be disciplined. Now, none of you will ever be disciplined. We hope. Our prayer is that none of you are ever disciplined. But you know what? When the hammer of discipline falls, what I see again and again and again is this funky attitude in the person disciplined. Rather than dealing with what it is that brought them under fire, they begin immediately to speak against the church. Against the pastor, and it's all their fault, and blah, 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 blah. And in so doing, you have just robbed yourself of 
of the blessing of discipline, what this whole thing was about. This is totally human nature. It's to be expected. You know, it's, this, this isn't the, just the very extreme weirdo that has this problem. Any person that's brought under discipline generally doesn't like it. In fact, the Bible goes as far as to say so. It says, no discipline is pleasant. Nobody enjoys this process. And, you know, if it comes down in your life, there's no way you're going to feel good about it. And you're not supposed to feel good about it. You're supposed to feel horrible about it. But at the same time, the, the issue is not all those hypocrites that are judging you. The issue is, uh, what is wrong with you that, that the church has had to bring it to this extreme? You, you shouldn't spend your time, if you are brought under discipline of any kind, let's say you sat down, you know, uh, there are various levels of discipline. People aren't always thrown out of church. Sometimes they're in ministry. They're asked to sit down. You know, there's, there's, there's just no love up here. There's no love in this church. And, and uh, it's not fair. It's not fair. You know what? You ought to just blow that whole psyche off. Fair has nothing to do with life. We're not even interested in fair. I could care less about fair. What, what, what I care about is you being right before God. That's what I care about. If I can get you right before God by being unfair, I'm going to be unfair every day of my life. My entire desire is for you to work out whatever it is in you that is causing the problem. And invariably, you know, uh, you may feel that it's too heavy a hand to make somebody sit down for this or sit down for that. But, but it is really never the superficial issue. Let's say somebody's in, uh, let's say somebody's in ministry and uh, they got a TV and so we ask you to sit down. Because this is what we believe. We believe that as examples in the church of Jesus Christ, um, you know, you shouldn't have a TV because you're leading people into insanity. Right? That's what we believe. Now, if you're not in ministry, you can have a TV. You, you, can, uh, you can do whatever you want. You can put a pistol in your mouth and blow your brains out. That's your business. But if you're in ministry, we'd rather you didn't do that. So we'll sit you down and say, look, uh, we don't want you doing that. You're not living the standard. And uh, you'll say, hey, standards, standards, standards. But really what you ought to be doing is going, you know what? What is it in me that took me back to the TV to begin with? Because, you know, when I was a new convert, I didn't want to have a TV. When I got saved, I didn't have a TV and I never wanted to buy one. So what is it in me now that my own personal holiness has come down so low that watching that trash doesn't bother me anymore? Right? See, the issue isn't the TV, you know. TVs aren't demons. It's the stuff that comes out. It's the stuff that you open your heart to. That's what you really ought to be asking yourself, you know. So, you know, you're getting, you're getting shaky in your church attendance and, uh, you know, you've missed a bunch of services and finally your group leader comes to you and says, you know what, man, you, you got to sit down. You can't. It's always been that if you're in ministry, you're going to be faithful to the services. You know, what, what, kind, of, what kind of cult is this, man? You're going to discipline me because I'm not coming to church. No. But you ought to be asking yourself, why don't you want to come to church anymore? What's going on in your spirit that's producing the fruit? See, that's the real issue. So so the bottom line is if you'll receive discipline, and we're going to see that this is farther reaching than the extreme discipline of getting thrown out of church or sat down. We're We're going to start working in some real nasty stuff here in just a minute. 
But whatever the level of discipline we may be talking about, if you will receive it, it'll produce something in your life of incredible value. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 7-11. No, that's not it. 2 Corinthians 9? No, it's in 2 Corinthians. Sorrow, I made you sorrow. Rick, help me. 7, 9 to 11. That's what it is. I'm just dyslexic. Okay, he says, look what this produced in you because you received the discipline. What, what godly fear, what diligence, what vengeance, what, you know, it, it produced all of these good things in you. He said, ultimately, this sorrow, we didn't, we didn't want you to sorrow. We wanted the sorrow to produce godliness. And if you let it have its way in your life, that's exactly what it will produce. All of a sudden, you begin to take the issues of Christianity more seriously. You begin to walk more carefully. You begin to be more careful about what you say, what you do, what you give your life to. And that's what discipline primarily is all about. That's what church discipline is for. I said there are two primary purposes. The second purpose is the issue of uh, protecting the church from internal corruption. Because invariably, uh, when you begin to loosen up the standards... You expose the church and you make it vulnerable to deception and to a decay that historically you can see it generation after generation. It happens again and again and again. The church loses its purity and when it loses its purity, it loses its testimony and it is no longer effective. And invariably at that point, God says, I'll see you later, I'm out of here. And he goes and finds a people after his name. And you read through Revelations and uh, the first three chapters, God again and again speaks to these churches and he says, if you don't straighten this up, I'm pulling your candlestick. I'm out of here. You're not even going to be my people. You're not even going to be my church because you're not dealing with the internal corruption. So discipline is brought to bear to guard against this. Again, let's have 1 Corinthians 5, 4 to 6. Somebody get that for me. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 to 6. Daniel, Owen, if you'll get me um, Titus 3.10, Romans 16.17 and 18, Dennis, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, sister, I don't know your name, Susan, okay, and 2 Thessalonians 3.14, Pete, Dennis, 2 Timothy 3.5, 2 John 1.10, somebody get that for me, uh, David, and let's have Matthew 18, uh, 15 to 20 again. Somebody, Pete, we'll get that. We're going to go back and look at that again. All right. So the second purpose here is to prevent the infection of a person's rebellion and sin to spread 
And so, uh, the, again, this is seen very, very clearly in Paul's logic in the, in the case of discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're looking at as a model. Let's have verses 4 to 6. Okay, here's, here's Paul. He's saying we have to judge this man. Your glorying is not good because don't you understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you understand that there's going to be a permeating process if you don't judge this? He goes on from there, and if you'll read through the rest of that chapter, spends a great deal of time talking about that very issue and uh, the, the necessity of keeping the church uh, pure. Give, uh, Daniel, give me verse 11. I tell you, don't keep company with someone who professes to be a Christian and is involved in these various things. Or in other words, this person that you are supposed to be disciplining, he needs to be removed and you need as a body to judge that man. He's not saying it's enough that he's thrown out of church. It says as a body, you need to avoid him. Don't eat lunch with him. Don't sit down with him. Make it very, very clear that as a body you have stood against his behavior because if as a body you fail to do so, you are allowing for the leaven to continue to infect. This is the entire logic of Paul's prohibition against this man. Is you as a body have to take an action against this man. And this becomes very, very difficult when we're dealing with friends, family, loved ones. This becomes very difficult, but we see this again and again in the commands of Scripture dealing with discipline. Titus 3.10. A man who's a heretic, who won't embrace sound uh, doctrine, you try to redeem him. After the first and second effort, you reject. The word literally is shun. This is what... Uh, we've heard of Quakers and uh, uh, Puritans shunning. This is where that comes from. It is the concept that you are to distance yourself from that man. Why should we shun a heretic? Just because he's not, you know, just because he's not in lockstep with us, just because he doesn't believe what we believe, you know, I mean, you know, he still loves Jesus. Well, the problem with false doctrine is it's seductive. The problem with false doctrine is you just, all it takes is a little bit of arsenic to spoil a quart of milk. All it takes is a little bit of false doctrine to start to permeate the church and uh, one thing leads to another. The next thing you know, you've got a church that's no longer recognizable as the church of Jesus Christ. Romans 16, 17, and 18. I charge you, brethren, mark them that cause divisions and uh, create problems contrary to the doctrine that you've received and avoid them. Again, shun them. Do not keep company with them. 
Why? He goes on to explain why. For they do not serve Jesus. It doesn't matter what they're saying about Jesus with their lips. When they begin to go squirrely, then they're no longer serving Jesus. And he says a very interesting thing. They use smooth words. That word is a compound word that literally means plausibility. They use plausible arguments. Here's the insidious danger of a rebel. Is their arguments make sense. Their arguments are very appealing. They're very plausible. They can show you chapter and verse. They, they can uh, uh, speak in such a way that, you know, well, yeah, that really makes sense. You ever come away from somebody who you know is a mad dog and you're confused about what you believe? Because they're plausible. They, this is what Paul says. He says, there's a reason why I want you to avoid them. Because if possible, they're going to suck you in. He also says they use flattering words, which means they know how to appeal to your ego. Well, Pastor Mitchell, now he's a very, very, very narrow-minded man, but you're much broader-minded. I can see that you're, you, you consider before you act. Pastor Mitchell, he's just impulsive. He just throws people out. He, he just, uh, this, whole, this whole Pensacola uh, barking thing, that's all been blown out of proportion, you know. I've seen videos from there, and I didn't see anyone barking. Yeah, well, I've seen videos from there, and I have seen them barking. So just because you were at a particular service where nobody got anointed to bark doesn't mean they don't do it. I was talking with Greg Farrell when this whole Pensacola false doctrine started to come through. Uh, there was a guy in the Australian part of the fellowship who sent him deliberately edited tapes that showed him, you know, exactly what they wanted him to see. And, uh, and the question that he put to them was, do you see anything wrong with this? And so, you know, based on the tape, how could Greg say, yeah, I see something wrong? There was nothing wrong to see. Does that mean there's nothing wrong? Not necessarily. But you see, the whole issue is we're trying to suck you in. We're trying to bring you into our position. And people do this, rebels do this, because they have to justify their own position. They have to justify their own position. So when you go and you talk to somebody who's been removed from the church, invariably, they don't say to you, I got thrown out of church because I'm a whoremonger. They don't say that. I got thrown out of church because I have the morals of a dog. Now what they say is, well, you know, I was misunderstood and someone saw me and it wasn't true and then they said some things and that wasn't true and I don't even know why this is happening. You know why it's happening. Be stupid. But you see, the arguments start coming and, and the smooth words start coming and the plausibility starts coming. And the next thing you know, you're siding against the church. And that's why the Bible says, avoid them. Shun them. Stay away from them. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. We command you. We command you. Strong language. Withdraw yourself. Withdraw yourself. But they're my friends. Withdraw yourself. Second Thessalonians three fourteen. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, know that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not keep company with him. Second Timothy three five. And if anyone is doctrine that is neither 
from such people turn away. Second John one ten. Yeah. Do you hear that? He says, if somebody comes to you and they're a rebel, he says, don't receive them. Don't even greet them. Don't even greet them. Boy, will that get us a reputation in a hurry. But that's what the Bible says. Don't even greet them. Hey, bro, how you doing? Yeah, real tragic about you being out of the church and all. Really sorry to hear you left the fellowship, dude. God bless you. He says, if you do that, you share in their crime. I didn't say that. John said that. You got a problem, you take it up with John when you see him. If you see him. Note the common theme here. We're going to open up for thoughts and questions in just a second. But note the common theme here of shunning and avoidance. The reason for this is the leaven factor. That's what you have to understand. This isn't to be cruel. This isn't to be stuck up and snobbish. This isn't to say, you're a heathen and I'm a Christian. That's not it. The the question is a leaven factor. Sharing in the crime. The thing permeating your own spirit. And you becoming infected by that. Okay? When a person is in such a state of rebellion that he will not receive correction, he will not repent of his action, he will not get his or her right, heart right, then there is something seriously wrong with that person's spirit and that will be communicated into your life. Keep in mind, this is for the unrepentant heart that is being disciplined by the church. This is the unrepentant heart that's being disciplined by the church. Okay? I wouldn't have fellowship. I wouldn't sit down to lunch with anybody who's being disciplined by the church. All right? By the same token, it has a great deal to do with the repentance of their heart in terms of how I might, how I might speak to them or not speak to them. And uh, I, this is the fine line, the difficult balance that you have to strike. This person's out of the church. What do I say to them? How do I respond to them? Well, if their heart's repentant, if they're not coming to you with a hundred excuses and a million explanations, then I would say there's, there's, there's latitude here. I wouldn't necessarily go to lunch with them, but I'd say, you know what, man, we're praying for you. You're going to make it. Live for God. We're for you. Okay? But if they're, if, if they're nothing but mouth, I'd, I wouldn't even talk to them. I wouldn't have anything to do with them. I'd avoid them. I'd shun them. I'd keep my distance as far as I could. Because if you don't, it's going to get all over you. Okay. Uh, I want to close with this verse before we open for questions. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Let's have that.
Okay, so I mentioned earlier the, uh, the statement that Paul makes in Corinthians about when you are together with my spirit and with the spirit of Christ. In this portion of Scripture in Matthew, he talks about this issue of discipline. They won't hear the brother. They won't hear brethren. They won't hear the church. They would be treated as heathen and publicans, which is, which is really a slam because in the Jewish mind, publican was as low as you go on the totem pole of sin. They just any, anything worse than a tax collector. And so here is this statement. He says, that's how you look at them. These are not brothers. And then he brings God into this action. He says, whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. We use this in our spiritual warfare stuff, which, as I said earlier, may have some appropriate application. But really what he's saying is, these are legal terms, binding and loosing were Jewish legal terms. And what he's saying is, if the church has said, this is the law, then I'm getting behind it. If you, the church, have judged something as wrong... I am going to say, that's my judgment. So you, the church, are not just acting on your own impulses. You are, you are speaking the mind and the will of God, and you are declaring God's judgment, and then you're fulfilling or you're acting out on God's judgment. You're not just, you're not just doing some uh, institutional policy. You are embracing God's judgment on an issue of, of, of sin or wrong. He goes on and says, where two or more, again I say to you, so he's still flowing in the same train of thought, where two or more agree of you is touching a thing, I'm there. What did Paul say in Corinthians? When the Spirit of Christ is there, judge it. I'm there. I am judging it with you. This puts the, a great responsibility on us to make sure that our judgments reflect the judgments of God. But it also puts a great responsibility on us to understand, you know what? This isn't just Pastor Mitchell mad at somebody. This is God judging somebody. And I have a responsibility to align myself with God. I don't care if it's my own mother. If I have to choose between mom and God, God wins. If I have to choose between my son and God, God wins. I have to align myself with God's judgment in this. And that may be incredibly painful, especially when we start moving into this realm of shunning. That's, that's, that's wicked, brutal stuff. But God says, I'm holding you accountable for this because this is my judgment. Okay, let's open it up. Uh, Cindy. Very good. So you have confidence that this process is God's idea. And therefore, God can use this process to the desired end of redemption. So you don't want to get yourself working at cross-purposes with God on this because your heart is for redeeming them. 
And so you're saying, you know what, this looks really hard to me, uh, but you know what, God said this is the way he's going to restore. God said this is how he's going to get a hold of him. I'm not going to get in the middle of that. I'm going to let God do what he has to do in this situation so that this person that I love can, in fact, be redeemed. Dennis. Very, very good. Very good. So here we are. We're, we've been in this church for a long time. And we say, you know, this is obvious. Of course you judge fornicators and adulterers. And, but uh, you ought to think about a pioneer church where the guy's got two families and you just found out one of them's not married. And you're struggling to build a church. You would not believe the temptation. And unfortunately, many, many times, the... The blind eye that is turned to that situation. What we have learned again and again is that the kingdom of God many times multiplies by subtraction. There is a strange math in the kingdom of God. And it multiplies by subtraction. I was just talking with a brother the other day who had lost a handful of dissidents. They had been there and he said they hadn't seen growth in that church for two years. And as soon as they walked out the door that instant they started getting converts in everywhere. It's multiplication by subtraction. So if a young pastor is struggling with this, if he does the right thing, not only will that open a door for God to bless that right action, but he will build something into the foundation of the church that down the road, it's a given in the church. You live morally here or you don't live here. Whereas if you make allowance for it, it will always throw a shadow on that moral stand. Okay, Pete. Very good. So the old saying is the Christian church is the only army that kills its wounded. And so uh, what he's saying here is really when you understand that many, many times Christians go down for the very reason that they are on the front line. I mean, you know, they're targets. 
The devil is after their bacon. And so, so fine. They make choices. It's their choices. They're the ones who do the deed. They're the ones who have to answer and are held accountable. Nonetheless, to then later on say, no, no, you know, we can't use you, is to rob yourself of the frontline heroes. It's to rob yourself of the men who have labored and know how to labor, know how to do it. And so it would be folly. Okay, Sandy. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't been involved with something like that, but I don't know what I'm assuming that there's a pastor that you're going to deal with. Yeah. And you give them a space of time to work out some things. Yeah. And you give them that framework. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking, first of all, usually what happens is a new convert's come in and uh, nobody even knows they're not married for a month or two because <laughs> they're always saying they're married and they're not. You know, they got married up on Mingus Mountain in front of the coyotes, you know. And so... Uh, so it finally comes out. Oh, you guys aren't married? And so when that comes out, nine out of ten times what happens is the body itself, which is what we're going to look at next week, begins to deal with the issue. And, and a lot of times the church doesn't even have to officially get involved in the process because their hearts are open to correction. A brother or sister says, you know, you guys can't live this way. And boom, they're separated. Now, sometimes in uh, situations people bring uh, sinners to church and uh, they get saved, and the person who brought them knows they're living together, and invariably right there he goes, you know, you guys need to split up. You need to do the right thing. Split up here. So a lot of times this, this stuff gets worked out before it ever comes to an issue of discipline. Okay? Then sometimes it may come to a pastor's attention, and he, what he will do uh, invariably is he will begin to pull them towards that decision immediately. In other words, he doesn't just turn a blind eye and say, oh, well, let's not worry about it for a couple of months. Immediately, either he or the person who's working with that person will begin to say, you guys need to start looking at this. So you have to give them time. They have to, perhaps they have to make preparations. They have to make marriage arrangements to send out invitations. You know, depending on how they do it. A lot of times they, uh, you know, they, they go to the Justice of the Peace to get it taken care of that week. But sometimes there are, there are mitigating circumstances. It takes some time to work some things through as long as they're moving in the direction, I want to get this right, then we can work with it up to a point. And after that point, it's like, well, you want to get this right, but you haven't, so I don't believe you. Right? But, you are, you, you know, what's the whole point? Redemption. So, we're trying to get them to the point where we get them married. So, sometimes this process can take a month or two. It's been known to take that long. But generally, we don't let it go much longer than that. If, if they haven't taken care of it by then, then they're not going to take care of it. They don't want to take care of it. Jeff. Uh, well, now, uh, if you could uh, uh, explain the process of throwing somebody out of the church to me a little better. Uh, I have actually attended a headset to do that.
See, this is the great thing, and I'm glad you raised this point. We're, almost, we're completely out of time, but I want to I respond to this. Is He says, it sounds like Paul, you, I mean, we're thinking of church building. Well, from our study, we know the building is not the church. The church is us. The difference between today and Paul's day is there was only one body. There wasn't a church across town you could go to. There wasn't another place to go. When you were removed from the church, you were out of the church. Period. There wasn't enough, you couldn't go and get a sympathetic ear across town. You were out. So what that implied to the person being removed was not just, oh, I'll go, that's alright, I'll go over to the Baptist. What that implied is, oh my God, I am not a part of the body of Christ anymore. I am not a part of Jesus anymore. What does that mean to my eternal soul? I'm going to hell. That's what it meant. And it, it couldn't be interpreted any other way. When the church took this action, it wasn't just removing you from our presence. It was judging you. This is why, Paul, this is why Jesus said, uh, you're, you're judging in the judgment of God here. I'm getting behind what you bind and loose. Because we're, we're not just talking about an institution. We're talking about the judgment of God on a situation. Okay, so getting back to, I think, where you were leading, but if not, we'll talk about it next week, and I want you to think about it, keep it in mind. And there were a bunch of other questions. I want you to keep those questions in mind, because I want to address them. This is, this is a very important issue in the church, okay? But uh, where I think you were going was, well, you know, sometimes it seems convenient to remove a predator. When Jesus says, whatsoever you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven, he, it's clear he's giving an element of latitude, isn't he? He's giving an element of latitude here, and he's saying, you're going to have to use some judgment here. Does this, should this person be removed or shouldn't him? And so sometimes we're all howling for somebody's blood. Well, why are they even still in the fellowship? Well, because God's working. And we're not ready to take that action yet because we're still in the process of trying to redeem. So we'll talk about this next week then.